When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canada's Great War. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate, or you can go to buymeacupofcoffee slash CraigU. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by, with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you, and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20 plus, you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to my username, Bairdo37. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash CanadianHistoryX. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. And there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. Before I begin, I want to mention that I, for some reason I have trouble pronouncing Esquimalt. And I think I got it right there. And I hope I maintain that through the episode, but for some reason, it's just a name that I have a lot of trouble with, but I'm hoping I pronounce it right, but kind of just a disclaimer before we get to the episode. When the First World War erupted, the Royal Canadian Navy was only four years old. Formed under the Naval Service Act as the Naval Service of Canada, Canada having a navy was a contentious issue. The establishment of a Canadian Navy was heavily disliked by French Canadians, and it would lead to the defeat of Sir Wilfrid Laurier and the Liberals after 15 consecutive years in power. The first two ships to join the new Navy were the Royal Navy vessels HMCS Niobe and the HMCS Rainbow, both of which had been built in the 1890s. In the case of the Rainbow, it was 21 years old at the time. 
The Royal Canadian Navy would officially be named as Royal Canadian Navy on August 29, 1911, when King George V granted permission for the name. Less than a month later, the Navy matter had ousted Laurier and the Liberals and replaced them with Robert Borden and the Conservatives. In 1912 and 1913, Borden and his government would try to pass a naval bill that would give $35 million for the construction of three dreadnoughts for the British Navy. Laurier, now serving as leader of the official opposition, argued that the bill threatened the autonomy of Canada, and in the end it failed in the Senate. And while other nations were far ahead when it came to navies, Canada lagged behind with its two ships. One, the Rainbow, was posted on the west coast on Esquimalt, and the Niobe was posted on the east coast when war was declared. Neither ship had a full crew and both lacked proper ammunition. On August 1, 1914, the HMCS Rainbow was sent to sea under the command of the Royal Navy to locate German ships and escort two lightly armed Royal Navy ships back to Canadian waters. This was the first time that a Royal Canadian Navy ship was sent to sea in search of enemy warships. The Niobe would be out of commission and dry dock until early September. Needless to say, Canada was unprepared for a sea war when the First World War began. With the amount of ships that had to send troops and supplies from North America to Europe during the war, an expansion was desperately needed. Early on in the war, the Royal Canadian Navy took on mostly supervisory roles at the ports of Canada. This included blocking the Eastern Passage into Halifax Harbour, placing submarine net defences, and conducting minesweeping. On August 7th, the Rainbow arrived in San Francisco to get coal, but the neutrality proclamation of the Americans only allowed the Rainbow to get 50 tons of coal. With far less coal than what was expected, the decision was made to have the ship patrol off of San Francisco. Commander Walter Hose would say, quote, it appeared to me that it was my duty, being a parent so close to the enemy, to try and get in touch with him at once. Consequently, I got underway at midnight and proceeded into misty weather to a point on the three-mile limit, 15 miles to the southward of San Francisco. From there I steamed slowly to the southward all the forenoon, and the weather being foggy and clear alternately. End quote. On August 10th, due to fuel concerns, the Rainbow was forced to return to Canada. One day after the Rainbow left San Francisco, the Leipzig appeared at San Francisco and remained in the area until August 18th. The Leipzig was far more powerful than the Rainbow, and that one day near miss would be the closest the Rainbow would ever get to meeting the Germans on the ocean. On the west coast, there was a worry over a German attack considering there was little in the way of defenses to stop it. Sir Richard McBride, the Premier of British Columbia, attended a meeting with several of Victoria's prominent citizens and they decided that they would purchase two complete submarines through J.V. Patterson, the president of the Seattle Construction and Dry Dock Company. McBride was heavily in favour of the idea of submarines and he began holding meetings on the matter in his office. Even though he could not commit Sir Robert Borden to the idea, McBride decided to go alone. On August 3, 1914, it was decided that the provincial government would advance money pending remittance for the submarines. The two submarines had actually been built for Chile, and Chile had paid $714,000 of the $818,000 purchase price, but this was now in arrears. Patterson was willing to declare the Chile contract void and sell the boats to the British Columbia government at a cost of $575,000 each. So, for him, he was doing pretty well, essentially selling the submarines twice. 
British Columbia had to act fast because as soon as Britain went to war, the United States would pass legislation prohibiting the sale of armed submarines to any country involved in the war. At dawn on August 5, 1914, five miles off the coast of Vancouver Island, delivery of the funds was made, totaling $1.15 million. This would amount to about $28 million today. The two submarines were cast off only the night before and officially they never left their American harbour, filed no paperwork, and had no clearance documents. Royal Canadian Navy personnel wore plain clothes to ensure that the Chilean government officials and naval personnel were ignorant of the operation. Once in international waters, the submarines were inspected and declared acceptable. The bank draft was handed over, and the crew of retired and active Royal Navy personnel, including civilians, took over the submarines. Since the exchange had happened in international waters, no neutrality legislation had been broken. The submarines were designated as CC-1 and CC-2. Along with the HMCS Rainbow, they were the only naval vessels protecting Canadian waters on the west coast. In 1917, CC-1 would be transferred to the east coast. Passing through the Panama Canal, the submarine became the first Canadian warship to traverse the canal under the White Ensign. Deemed unsafe for transatlantic crossings, CC-1 stayed at Halifax for coastal defense. In 1920, the submarine was laid up and five years later broken up, having never seen any action. As for CC-2, it too would be transferred to the East Coast in 1917 and put on coastal defenses. It would finish the war as a training vessel and would be put up for sale in 1920 and scrapped in 1925. A year after the purchase of the submarines, McBride was before Royal Commission to defend his purchase. He would state that he felt estranged by the decisions of Ottawa and, quote, because of the existence in local waters of two German warships and the defenseless nature of our coast cities, there was a great deal of tension among our people. It appeared to me that something should be done to afford home protection for our coast cities. We are 3,000 miles from Ottawa, and it is not always easy to get immediate connection. I therefore took it upon my own responsibility to purchase these vessels, and I intend to have the province of British Columbia foot the bill. End quote. On September 1st, the Niobe was ready for service, and work would begin to crew it. A total of 16 Royal Navy officers and 194 ratings, or junior enlisted crew, were assigned to the ship. Another 28 Royal officers and 360 ratings were also assigned. The government of Newfoundland also assigned one officer and 106 ratings from the Newfoundland Division of the Royal Navy Reserve to the ship. While Canada had now two submarines and two ships, it was still very unprepared for a German attack if it were to come. Two government vessels, the CGS Canada and the CGS Margaret, were also pushed into service. And many patriotic citizens would try to shore up the Royal Canadian Navy by offering up their personal yachts to the Navy. By the fall of 1914, Prime Minister Robert Borden asked First Sea Lord Winston Churchill what naval aid Canada could provide to help England. He was told, quote, Admiralty informed, don't think anything effectual can now be done as ships take too long to build and advise Canadian assistance be concentrated on army. End quote. Borden would ask for new destroyers that could be built in Canada and to borrow ships from the Royal Navy, but he was told that Britain had no ships that it could lend. On November 1, 1914, the Battle of Coronel occurred off the coast of Chile, with two British armoured cruisers sinking in the battle. On one of the ships were four Royal Canadian Navy midshipmen, 
who became the first Royal Canadian Navy casualties of the war. These men were also the first Canadian casualties of the war that would see 50,000 Canadian men dead. By September 1915, after only one year in service, the Niobe would be recommissioned as a depot ship in Halifax, where it would spend the rest of the war. When the Halifax explosion occurred in December 1917, the Niobe was severely damaged and would be scrapped by 1920. German U-boats continued to cause havoc for the Allies on the ocean, and within the first seven months of the war, U-boats had sank 470 ships. There was a worry that German agents would attempt to establish supply bases for submarines along the remote parts of Newfoundland and Canada on the east coast. Commander R.M. Stevens, the Royal Canadian Navy Chief of Staff, would propose to put into place 10 patrol vessels to watch the waters of the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the coast of Nova Scotia. Five Royal Canadian Navy ships would be put into this group, the HMCS Canada, HMCS Margaret, HMCS Sable One, HMCS Premier, and the HMCS Tuna. The Canada and Margaret were fishery patrol vessels, the Premier and Sable One were civilian vessels given to the Navy, and the Tuna was an American yacht that had been bought by Montreal millionaire J.K.L. Ross, who gave it to the Royal Canadian Navy as a gift. Other American yachts would be used in the Gulf Patrol as well, including two ships, the HMCS Stadacona and the HMCS Hochelega. The Gulf Patrol began operating in July 1915. Back on the west coast, the Rainbow was performing reconnaissance work at the time, monitoring German shipping activity along the coast of Mexico and Central America. Throughout the spring of 1916, it patrolled the area and even captured two German-owned ships. The ship was joined by the HMCS Galeno and the HMCS Malaspina, both fishery patrol vessels. The Malaspina was assigned for servicing radio stations and lighthouses, and it would be severely damaged on one of those runs, putting her out of service. The Galliano arrived into service from the Queen Charlotte Islands, but was put out into action despite needing servicing. On October 29, 1917, the ship was unloading supplies at Triangle Island when she was hit by a huge storm which had sunk the Princess Sophia, something I covered in another episode on Canadian History X. The ship went down with all 38 of its crew and only three bodies were ever recovered. The HMCS Prince George had been a Canadian National Railway cruise ship and was put into service on the west coast as a hospital ship with 200 beds and a red cross painted on its funnel. On board were six nursing sisters who were the first women recruits of the Royal Canadian Navy. After heading to Prince Rupert, the ship was supposed to go to Hong Kong, but it was then given orders to return to the nearest British port, which happened to be Prince Rupert. The ship then went to its west coast base for an inspection and never left. It only spent 45 days in service during the war. Enlistment in the Royal Canadian Navy was slow compared to the Canadian Expeditionary Force. One reason for this was that the Royal Canadian Navy paid 70 cents for able-bodied seamen, while the Expeditionary Force paid $1.10 per day for similar men. When war was declared, 9,000 Canadians did enlist in the Royal Canadian Navy, with only 1,000 being recruited, while the rest were put into the British Royal Navy as reserves. While that was an increase in the number of men in the Navy, it paled in comparison to the number of men enlisting in the Canadian Expeditionary Force. By November 1916, the Royal Canadian Navy was told by the Admiralty to increase its anti-submarine patrol to 36 vessels, along with 12 minesweepers. Captain Walter Hose was put in charge of the East Coast patrols. Unfortunately for Hose, both Britain and Canada provided chains of command and often conflicting reports 
which made his task very difficult. Due to Allied merchant shipping taking heavy losses by early 1918, the Canadian government created the Canadian Government Merchant Marine. These ships were intended to cooperate with the British shipping to supply war needs. On June 27, 1918, the RMS Landovery Castle, which was one of five Canadian hospital ships to serve during the war, was torpedoed by a German submarine off the coast of Ireland. In the sinking, 234 doctors, nurses, and soldiers and sailors lost their lives. Only 24 people in a single life raft survived. The sinking was the deadliest sea disaster for Canada during the war. By the end of July, German U-boats were sinking American ships and there was a worry that would begin to move into Canadian waters. That worry became a reality on August 2nd when a U-boat sank the Canadian ship, the Dorfentine, just off the coast of New Brunswick. The U-boat then travelled towards Nova Scotia where it sank three Canadian fishing vessels between August 3rd and August 5th. On August 20th, U-156 captured the Canadian fishing trawler Triumph, followed by four more fishing vessels later that day. The Triumph was then fitted with a three-pounder gun and was then used by the Germans. On August 25th, U-156 was in the process of boarding four fishing schooners when the HMCS Hochelega, part of a four-ship Canadian patrol, saw the ship. The captain of the ship urged caution and suggested waiting for reinforcements. The flotilla leader, the HMCS Carche, instead steamed toward the submarine location. The submarine soon disappeared after sinking the schooners. This was the only direct action that the ships would have during the war. The captain, for what was seen as a loss of nerve in front of the enemy, was court-martialed and dismissed from the Navy. U-156 would sink one more Canadian fishing schooner before going back to Europe. It would be lost by a British mine barrage on September 25th. While Canadians were outraged by U-156 as well as U-155, there was little the Royal Canadian Navy could do to stop the boats in Canadian waters. The Royal Canadian Navy only had 11 vessels capable of handling the submarines on the east coast, and only five of those could actually venture beyond coastal waters. On September 5, 1918, the Royal Canadian Naval Air Service was formed to carry out anti-submarine operations using aircraft, but the service would only last until the end of the war. By the end of the war, Canada's Navy had expanded from 350 sailors to 5,000, with another 3,000 Canadians serving with the Royal Navy. There was also a hundred small vessels that had been pressed into service, most of which were stationed at Halifax. Canadians also gave their lives on the sea, with about 150 to 190 Royal Canadian Navy sailors dying by the end of the war. No records state how many civilian sailors lost their lives during the war. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at the Canadian Navy. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Wendy Mills, Keelan Pregnitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, 
Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S, JP Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Virtual War Memorial, Canada.ca, Canada War Museum, Wikipedia, Canadian Military Magazine, Government of Canada, Ottawa Citizen, Montreal Gazette, Vancouver Province, and the Edmonton Journal. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.